Hi, and welcome to Too Many Jennifers, a podcast made by Jennifers for everyone. I'm Jen Tisdale. And I'm Jenny Cavallero. We both qualify to host this podcast. Yep. It's a very low bar of having (laughs) the most common name from 1970 to 1984, and we're in it to win it. We're in it. We're here. We're winning it. Yeah. Um, I actually have two Diet Cokes. We were talking just briefly about how you're drinking coffee. So I went to the grocery store that's usually trustworthy and they didn't have any Diet Coke in stock except for these little mini cans, which are 7.5 ounces, which they say it's for sipping and boy, is it. Um, but then they also had these fancy little bottles of eight ounce Diet Cokes. <laughs> So this, my, my can was almost empty. So I was like, well, I have to have one on deck. I can't be unprepared. So I have both. Um, and uh, I feel like it's like dolls, like I'm a doll and this is my toy food and beverages. So. I just, I just really appreciate somebody being like, oh, if only I had like a half, just like a half ounce more. If I just had, and then Diet Coke was like, we got you we got you here's a Um, half ounce i will say they did have plastic bottles but that's unacceptable as an option so you know these are the problems of today in my life um yeah how's your how's your week going jen well i i we are recording on a different date not that anyone has any idea what or how that happens because i had a job interview that i'm excited about which is obviously awful like it's so (laughs) I, I can't decide what is a worse feeling when you don't get a job that you really want, or you don't give a job that you just don't give a shit about. What is a worse feeling? Who? I mean, I've had both of those feelings. Uh, they feel pretty equal right now. So I'm just existing in a place where I'm sad that I want something. <laughs> oh yeah. The, it, it, yeah. Yeah. The, the human condition. It's a bummer sometimes. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't like how it makes me feel. This is exactly the same way. This is why I don't have crushes or mm. uh, allow myself to be attracted to people beyond uh, sex. I don't know why I said it like that. I thought it would just make, make the listener feel better if I didn't take that word seriously. Sex. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it like, like Keith Morrison, who has resting ominous voice. <laughs> you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Sex should not be an ominous, uh, situation. No, no. Every time you have it, you shouldn't hear dun, 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 just like law and order. <laughs> it's not those victims. They're so special. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, well, that's exciting and also terrible. So yeah. congrats. Thank you. And I- I'm sorry. <laughs> Can I tell you that I've already been at, I don't, I mean, we follow each other on Twitter. So I, I don't know if you know, are aware uh, because of the algorithm or just because you don't care how openly disdainful I feel towards LinkedIn, um, bo- both as a, and it is a social media tool. We can pretend, stop pretending that it's anything but social media. Once they started adding like stories or whatever they call them on LinkedIn, I was like, this website, it's hot garbage. Like not a single person is gotten a job off LinkedIn. I'm convinced it's just people writing paragraphs of like, you know, live, laugh, love, but it's, you know, live, laugh, career, whatever. And I just, (laughs) I can't stand it. And then every once in a while, there's a gross man because men are just like, oh, thank God there's another place for me to be disgusting and it's work related. Thank God. There's not, you know, every other corner of the universe and the internet. uh, If you got DMs, you're asking for it. 
so Lori's so men are are men men are weird and creepy to you on linkedin even though um, it's no. you're trying to get a job my dog's gonna bark um hey no, Lorraine, but i've up, seen girl? it but what i've done is i've already started crafting my i've got a job announcement and i just it's just gonna be me setting fire to linkedin only to probably have to return to it three weeks later i hope not but that's great i mean they write obituaries ahead of time so you should write <laughs> the farewell to your unemployment ahead of time you gotta oh be ready my oh my god um oh. i've never really been on linkedin like i think i made a profile years ago when i was in grad school but it just hasn't really come up i don't know there's not a lot of networking and schmoozing in my profession uh, or not for what i want to do so diet coke taster diet coke uh professional taster as yeah. we know yeah i i've done the homework i've done the research uh, I'm very, I might be overqualified, but a girl has a dream, you know, it's not going to drink itself unless Elon Musk invents that, in which case that can also host Saturday night live. What a wild thing. Yeah. By the time you're listening to this, Elon Musk has already hosted Saturday night live, assuming, um, they still allowed that to happen. <laughs> and I'm going to go on the record and say that I didn't watch it. No, and I'll say that as well. And I, I am evidently bad at, at trying to make this podcast an evergreen thing. Like, <laughs> You're fine. Why don't, why don't yeah. I just put the time and the date out? And then... <laughs> well, we're we're doing a smart thing, which is we're recording a few episodes before we release it, yeah. so that you know life gets busy. Um, maybe you'll have a job by the time you're listening to this. God, I hope so, and I also don't hope so. Oh boy, what a what a real feeling inside of me. It's a real comedy and tragedy mask, which was an interesting segue into our oh. subject, I think, today. Jenny, why don't you tell us what we're, we're doing today? Thank you for that very natural segue. That was wonderful. Um, so today we're introducing a new uh thematic episode called Drumroll, please. Jenny spoils a play. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, I was an English major. I don't know. What was your major in college, Jen? Uh, I left after a year because I met a guy in the Bloodhound Gang and we started dating. So that I, makes just, sense. I just moved to Los Angeles. So what's that? Uh, I majored in awesomeness. I'm rock and roll. You majored in rock and roll. Um, well, I majored in English and I had to read a lot of plays and other Bits of literature. And uh, in our research for our first episode, I came across a little line in Wikipedia in reference to the name Jennifer. And I came across uh, a man we know as Mr. George Bernard Shaw. Are you familiar, Jen? You've heard the uh, name. I have heard the name. I assume he's not an assassin. The rule of three names Ooh. usually applies, but I guess uh, GBS not not an assassin unless he's assassinating those lines of dialogue um, some might say some might say he is doing that so um so we're going to learn a little bit about george bernard shaw today and also um a play relevant to jennifer culture um which i'm going to be honest i tried to read it couldn't get through it um it well was let me ask you this do you like plays and or musicals, because a lot of people will be like, I can't stand musicals. And I'm like, well, yeah, there's nothing less comfortable than people breaking out of song in the middle of like a conversation. It's weird. I'm going to say yes. I do like plays. I don't read a lot of them. I've taken one and a half acting classes where we had to read plays and perform from plays. 
And I enjoy that. And I think theater is very cool. Um, and I like musicals to a point, unless we're talking about like cutesy modern musicals like Wicked or Legally Blonde, the musical. I find that annoying. Yeah. Um, I'm just like, well, not everything has to be a musical, you know? Hamilton, yes. I thought that was great. Um, I love myself some West Side Story. I love a um, Fiddler on the Roof situation, you know, kind of classic stuff. But actually, George Bernard Shaw, his most what people most know him for now is Pygmalion, which was the basis for My Fair Lady, the film and musical. So that's a you fun mean, frame of reference. You mean the hit film She's All That? That's exactly <laughs> what I meant as well. I forgot to continue the chain. It's okay. It all comes back. And um, yeah, I, I feel like, and then we should get started. I feel like for me, Sometimes I suspect that people just say they like plays and musicals because it denotes a certain sort of like, you know, fanciness. Um, right. Like I go to the theater. I yeah, love and, the theater. But, but we're all just like secretly sitting there together, just wanting this to end and, and wishing the intermission would come. And I sure. And I feel like the reason why that is, is because unlike a movie theater, you, you usually can't eat or drink. It's certainly more disruptive to go to the bathroom. So you really are in like a little prison yeah. you know, until they release you for intermission and then release you for the end. And that gives me that anxiety. Like if I could just sit there and eat or drink the whole time and get up anytime I needed to, that'd be great. But instead, See, you can't usually. What you want is a high school theater production where they're selling concessions and no one gives a shit if you get up to go to the bathroom because there's like toddlers there whose big brother is playing yes. Joseph and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor <laughs> Dreamcoat. Yeah, that's um, exactly what I want. I'm 41 years old and I want these kids back in school so that I can go to these high school performances. And have a Sprite and a bag of popcorn. That's what you want. Or, a, or like a wine, whatever. Are they serving those? I don't know how uh, high schools are. <laughs> I think at the Kennedy Center, you can get alcohol because they make money off of that i went to one play there my friend Corey took me to go see cabaret which was great i had a great time i'd never seen cabaret i knew some of the music but i i liked that a lot um and it felt fancy and fun yeah um but that was like four years ago so um anyway i would go i would not go see this play that we're going to talk about (laughs) but um all right. So first of all, um, I got all of my information from Wikipedia, um, a wonderful website called gradesaver.com, which I'm sure I would have used in high school when I tried to read the play and just couldn't get through it because um, it was boring and there were too many men talking. Um, and also I got some information <laughs> from the Literature Arts and Medicine Database and Annotation by Jack Coolahan. Um, it's called Lit LitMed, and that's an NYU database. Okay. So first let's talk a little bit about George Bernard Shaw. Um, he was born July 26th, 1856. Um, he died November 2nd, 1950. And my favorite thing about that I learned about George Bernard Shaw is that at he insisted like later in his life, he only wanted to be known simply as Bernard Shaw, just Bernard Shaw. And then everyone promptly ignored that after his death and was like, 
it's like, you know, he already had a brand and they were like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. So he's still referred to as George Bernard Shaw and all this. Do you think that is there were uh, too many Georges and he just wanted <laughs> to separate himself? That I understand. That is possible because, I mean, there was a King George who was coronated in 1911. So that was around the time this play came out. Um, and maybe he kind of thought he was bad. So um, I don't know. I just thought that was fun thematically, Um, but everyone ignored him. So we're going to call him George Bernard Shaw for the remainder of the podcast. Um, He was born in Dublin and he moved to London in 1876. Um, He wrote more than 60 plays in his lifetime, including um, Man and Superman in 1902, Pygmalion, which we mentioned in 1912, and St. Joan in 1923. Those are kind of his more notable things. And he incorporated contemporary satire and historical allegory and also um, his political beliefs in Ugh. his plays. Yes. That, that's <laughs> which, that's which always gonna, where things go mm-hmm. to help. <laughs> we're going to get into that a lot. So he became the leading dramatist of his generation and was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1925. Um, so one of the things he did after he moved to London was he was like struggling to establish himself as a writer. So he decided to um, embark on a self-education Um, which is where you pick and choose the things you want to learn and then decide what is right. So, um, wow. I know, I know. You all know that's usually an opportunity only afforded to women and people of color. So it's nice that at some Mm -hmm. point they let this straight white man uh, have a go. It is really, it's really sweet. So he started to have some success. Um, His, a lot of his plays started to become popular and being staged and published. Um, I will say anyone who has a Wikipedia subsection called beliefs and opinions, not going to be on my team. And, and old, old George Bernard Shaw, old GBS has that. Um, he had a lot of conflicting views his whole life. Um, he promoted eugenics, oh. which not a fan. Um, and alphabet reform. He wanted to change the standard alphabet. And he also opposed vaccination. Oh boy. I guess we would have gotten the COVID. Yeah. yeah. And he opposed organized religion, which, you know, who are we to judge? <laughs> um, so he, wait, wait, I, I know there's probably no answers to this, but like, you know how like you're, uh, you'll get some sort of your phone, like Facebook will do an update or somebody will do an update and the update's useless. It's just like, hey, everything that was blue is now red. Cool update. Like, that's what the alphabet thing feels like. I'm like, why are we yeah. reinventing that wheel? What do we, we don't know what so he, he, had- he was like, get rid of Z. And I'm like, agree. So he was really, it sounded like he was really stubborn and he just refused to follow standardized spelling and punctuation, which is like sort of punk rock, but also like he thought he was important enough to invent his own alphabet, um, which is a lot. So he, um, that was like a, a lifelong thing. He wouldn't follow the norms. Like he wanted to use art, more archaic spellings, um, and he ad- he rejected the apostrophe <laughs> in contractions such as won't or that's. He just full out rejected it, which apostrophes are like a very English language. Yeah, thing. boy. They don't exist see- in a lot of other languages, but I don't think that was why, because he, I don't think was, you know, super globally engaged. <laughs> 
It sounds like he wanted to uh, maga the maga all the words, make a make America grammar again. I don't know. I was yeah, there. and actually, in his will, he ordered that after some you know, money was designated to certain organizations and things. His remaining assets were to form a trust to pay for the fundamental reform of the English alphabet into a phonetic version of 40 letters. Can you just like, okay, fine. I, again, I've recently did, <laughs> I, I recently did my own estate uh, will mm-hmm. and, I, and I believe I've already mentioned this. Some portion of money is going to a bat sanctuary and that's that, a that is a normal thing to do, yeah. not to uh, propose that people take on the task of redoing the English alphabet. But the courts <laughs> agreed with us. They were like, "No, that I don't think we're going to do that." <laughs> but eventually, after some back and forth um, with the court system, um, there was uh, eight thousand three hundred pounds went. Um, towards that effort and most of it was spent was used for a special phonetic edition of Androcles and the Lion in this Shavian alphabet which is what they would call it Shavian meaning the influence of Shaw which was published in 1962 to a quote largely indifferent reception <laughs> so oh, didn't like- work out <laughs> I hope that's part of his epitaph, a largely indifferent largely indifferent. Um, he was, yeah, he was very political, um, wrote and spoke favorably of dictatorships on both the right and left, um, and expressed admiration for both Mussolini and Stalin. So thankfully in the last decade of his life, he made very few public statements because I'm sure they would have been great. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, he's had quite a legacy. Um, the kind of scholarly responses to his work is varied, but he's rated as second only to Shakespeare among British dramatists and inspired uh, a generation of English language playwrights. So that's a little bit about George Bernard Shaw. Wait, but he was born in Ireland, right? He was, but he moved to London when sure. he was a young man. But I do so. feel like as the British hate the Irish so much that, but they're willing to make an exception for uh, someone who they think is a really great writer. Otherwise they're just like the Irish are trash. Get out of our, get yeah. out of our base. I love that. And he had and- certainly some trash opinions. So, um, you know, God. Well, it's hard to believe this guy wrote Pygmalion's uh, a play uh, primarily about making over a woman in in a in a superior image. Oh, we're gonna talk this about guy? women today. <laughs> oh boy! Um, well, so... somebody has to because George evidently. <laughs> So the play we're going to talk about today is called The Doctor's Dilemma, and it was published in 1906. It was first staged in 1906. It was published in 1908. So um, just briefly to talk a little bit about what life was like in England at that time in the 1900s. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the film Mary Poppins, Jen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm A spoonful of sugar helps the George yeah. Bernard Shaw go down. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we all remember, of course, the wonderful Julie Andrews and all of that. But there's also at the beginning when the father, Mr. Banks, is just talking about how great it is to be a dude in England in 1910. Yeah, because the wife is a, is a, is a suffragette. She's a suffragette. And he says, he sings, uh, it's great to be an Englishman in 1910. 
King Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men. And she comes in singing Sister Suffragette. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Stay busy over there with your ladies. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, it's very like, it's a very sanitized version. But um, it was a great time to be a man, obviously, as it has been throughout history. Um, this was the end of the Edwardian era. So King Edward died in 1910. Um, and this is a period portrayed often as like a golden age um, of long summer afternoons and garden parties, like a perfect ideal time to be a white British person. Um, and many people say that that um, many people meaning Wikipedia, um, that this is like a nostalgic look because, of course, World War One started in 1914 and was a horrific time in history. So this is sort of them looking back at their younger years is really idyllic and not dealing with all of that war bullshit. Um, and so, yeah, it's also been seen as a mediocre period of pleasure between the great achievements of the preceding Victorian age and the catastrophe of the following war. Um, there were also great differences between wealthy and the poor during this period. This and is it, all sounding very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it really brought about a lot of changes in political and social life. So there was a growing political awareness among the working class, leading to a rise in trade unions, um, the labor movement and demands for better working conditions. A women's suffrage, of course, was also on the rise, like Mrs. Banks and Mary Poppins and other real people who put themselves in danger. Um, of course, only for white ladies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and women did have more opportunities for work uh, with the invention of the sewing machine, the typewriter, and the emergence of nursing as a profession. So they had more opportunities and there was increased literacy across the middle classes. So they had more access to ideas. Um, do we but, know, not that it matters, I don't want to get on this tangent, if in England, uh, and I feel like women only went to work during World War II, I don't think that happened as much during World War I as it did in World War II in our country, and I'm just wondering if in World War I, women were also forced to sort of pick up the slack because because we didn't oh, enter yeah. world war one until halfway through everybody yeah. else was in it to win it you know yeah. america is johnny come lately We're, yeah we'll come hang out when it affects us personally mm -hmm. not when other people are being no slaughtered um yeah that i don't know um i mean a lot of women were domestic workers at that time in england and other places um but yeah we gotta i guess get a historian's opinion someone can tweet at us later if that's how they want to spend their time. Um, oh, mortality rates were also on the decline during this time as people had better economic opportunities and access to better housing and food and medical care. And medical care is a big theme in the doctor's dilemma, which we're going to talk about right now. Um, so again, this is published in 1908. It was published um, in 1911 with a preface on doctors, which is the edition you can find on Google Books, actually, which, okay, the preface is 117 pages. I feel like the, that's, a, that's a couple of chapters. <laughs> the play not... is 101 pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you're George Bernard Shaw and you want to write a play about a social issue, you have to first share every single opinion you have about that issue before you even get to the drama. 
Um, he would have been really annoying on Twitter is all I'm saying. <laughs> he would have been just awful. So the preface includes sections like doubtful character born by the medical profession, the craze for operations, and of course, the perils of inoculation. He was not a fan. Um, and, and just to, to clarify one more time, George Bernard Shaw, not a doctor? Not a doctor, but nice. he underwent that self-education, as we remember. He Googled so he's, it. he's read some books, um, and he does have some good points. I didn't read the whole thing. That's my... Uh, <laughs> What was that? <laughs> was that was that an Alexa? Somebody is telling us about George Bernard. <laughs> and now Lorraine is yelling. Everything fell apart just now. What I'm happened? So was that Listen, a robot? I'm a. I have a. I have a. Uh, I'm keeping a small robot hostage. Yeah, it's my Google thing. So this podcast is obviously being sponsored by Google, which means that at any point during the podcast, Google can interrupt or my dog. Um, I feel like Google thinks it's smarter than me, so I don't like that. <laughs> um, okay. So Shaw, he had so he does have some rightful criticism about the medical profession at that time. Again, I didn't read the whole preface because it was 117 pages and it was a lot. Um, but he's not a fan of the medical profession. He's very untrustworthy. I mean, the mortality rate for things like surgery was really high. And he was very critical of like how doctors would often present dubious treatments to make money from people who are sick and suffering well i would argue that's not necessarily i bet back then like the whole like you know road to wellville sort of snake oil salesman thing was like probably very prevalent where people were just doing these i mean there's you know if you've paid attention to medical history at all there were some dubious things that were being suggested to people yeah there were a lot of a lot of common diseases that didn't have good treatments so doctors would just make some up and say it was like mercury like Mm -hmm. you should just take a shot of mercury every day it's gonna it'll it'll kill everything especially you and we'll see on the other side exactly Yeah. And those who couldn't afford legitimate treatments that could actually help them would just die. This was, you know, pre NHS in England and like business as usual in America. So there's a lot of really, you know, modern implications for this, like, um, in this play actually for like things that are happening now. So, okay. So let's, let's get into the play. So the play opens, with Dr. Colenzo Rigion. God, Rigion. You don't, you don't, you, you don't have, I, look, as someone who is really jealous of an interesting name, I, I do think for a play, you don't have to do that. Let's go. Colenzo. Like, was that a common name? Colenzo? Absolutely not. And someone has to say that probably a couple of times throughout the play. And oh, it's yeah. Also, and it's like a whole mouthful. And God, I'm already tapping out. I'm and is, you see why I didn't make it through this play. Um, so his and his last name is Rigin, like pigeon, but with an R. Um, and he's been recently knighted, so he's having a good day, Jen. Okay, Doctor Doctor Rigin. We might call him Sir Rigin, but we don't have to. Okay. Um, and he's got he's been knighted because he's seemingly developed a cure for tuberculosis, which is a big deal. Did we have a? 
cure or a vaccine. I don't even remember no. how, we, how we got. No, rid of and there was no penicillin yet. No antibiotics. Um, his cure in the play is he develops a cure by quote stimulating the phagocytes. No idea what those are. Um, couldn't couldn't understand what that is if that's a real thing it doesn't Some, matter something in your <laughs> lungs phagocytes something um you know i tried to look it up and i'm not a medical professional so i just kept going <laughs> um <laughs> but as a note between 1851 and 1910 around 4 million people died from tb in england and wales so developing a cure for that even in a fictional universe would be a big deal right so that sounds like it was a pandemic ish yes one mm. might say that mm -hmm. um so his friends other doctors um gather to congratulate him because he's just been knighted um and these friends this is our cast of characters includes sir patrick cullen normal name um <laughs> who's a distinguished old physician walpole an aggressive surgeon that's not a name either walpole Wait for this. Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington, <laughs> who they just refer to as Bonington for the rest of the play. Same. Yeah. <laughs> He's a charismatic society doctor, which means, you know, no morals. Rich, rich and useless. Yeah, basically. And Blankensop. Oh, God. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> I'm now really beginning to appreciate a name that is <laughs> by half the world because these are still, if you go on vacation, you're not getting souvenirs for any of these guys. You're no. not bringing these yeah. guys home a mug. Well, these are their last names, I think, mostly, but Blanken. Yeah. Are you going to a doctor named Dr. Blankensop? Does that I, seem? No, I don't want to go to a doctor whose last name sounds like a, an ailment. Yeah. Oh, but here's the thing. We kind of like him. He's an honest doctor. Um, he's a government doctor. He doesn't make a lot of money. He treats the poor and is like generally a good dude. Like maybe he's not the best at his job, but he tries. So he's kind of the only one who has some honor in here. And that's a big theme like that Shaw's like doctors have no honor. Um, they have no morality. So um, but each one of them has a, his favorite theory of like, illness and how to cure tuberculosis but all of them contradict each other like one man's cure is another man's poison is what it says so um oh, that's actually a really good line oh no oh no yeah so that is from our um our abstract from the literature database by the way this is not i was is a very nice a, summary is that just a play on one man's trash is another man's treasure yes okay that's what Absolutely. Sort of. One man's tuberculosis trash is another man's, another man's tuberculosis treasure. <laughs> um, That's the shirt. <laughs> but they all get along. They're all friends. They're colleagues. So, you know, they're sipping scotch, high five in each other, whatever. Um, so after Dr. Um, I forgot his name because it was so stupid. Got Dr. Ridgen, our recent knight. Um, he meets with Sir Patrick Cullen, who's the one who's old and he's retired now. Um, in walks Jennifer Dubidot. <laughs> <laughs> Again, pronunciation. Who freaking knows? We're going with Dubidot. <laughs> it's spelled D-U-B-E-D-A-T. 
Dubadot. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be it. You know, what would have helped if we had a phonetic alphabet? You're really that, onto something. Then I could, if it's just 40 letters, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And now I know how to say everything. I think you need to redo your will is what needs to happen. <laughs> Sorry, bat sanctuary. You're not getting shit. Sorry, bats. Um, so she walks in to see him and he doesn't really want to see her. Cause I think people are always coming to him to ask for things. And, um, but his serving women woman insists and her name is Emmy. And I want to give you the descriptions of both of these women. This is how, how they enter the scene. And we've had all these, you know, distinguished doctors hanging out. Um, and then we come there are three women in this play who have names <laughs> and, and this is Emmy, the long suffering housemaid. Okay. <laughs> so his student red penny is, is talking to him also. Also, I think that might be the best name red penny. Um, uh, he's interrupted by the entrance of an old serving women, woman, who has never known the cares, the preoccupations, the responsibilities, jealousies, and anxieties of personal beauty. Oh my God. She has the, (laughs) it's not done. Oh no. She has the complexion of a never washed, and then they use a term uh, for a Romani person, which I'm not going to say because it's not. I know the word. Okay. Incurable by any detergent. And she has not a regular beard and mustaches, which could at least be trimmed and waxed into a masculine presentableness. But a whole crop of small beards and mustaches, mostly springing from moles all over her face. She carries a duster and toddles about meddlesomely, spying out dust so diligently that while she is flicking off one speck, she's already looking elsewhere for another. So, okay, she's a great worker. Yeah. Um, What is she meddling in? How dare you meddle in your own job? Oh, wait. (laughs) You ready? She has used her ugliness to secure indulgences unattainable by Cleopatra or Fair Rosamond and has the further great advantage over them that age increases her qualification instead of impairing it. Because... No, being an industrious, agreeable, and popular old soul, she is a walking sermon on the vanity of feminine prettiness. <laughs> okay, I for I okay, I truly fuck that- you. This is page four but of that, the play. But that page last, four. <laughs> that last sentence makes no sense. We basically just des- described this woman in the worst way possible, and then ended it with the opposite of that. It, I. it's like it manages to be demeaning to women like no matter what they look like they're like well if she was pretty she would be vain but she's so ugly that oh yeah and she could make herself somehow better if she just trimmed her beard a little bit but she's too busy meddling around like she's too busy working and running your life sir that's why she's dirty she's covered in the dust of your house which by the way as we all know is just your skin flaking off that's what dust is so so sorry she's covered in you maybe pay her more you know probably doesn't pay her that's the most upsetting 
Okay. So it's okay. shocking. Okay. Imagine being cast as that woman. <laughs> now you're just I know. Like- this is what I'm wondering. Like, what are, how do you, what are the, mo- what's the modern take? I mean, okay. So when I was in acting class, they said anything in italics, which is like a stage direction or exposition. That's like this, the notes from, you know, kind of like the original intent, but those things can be altered because it's not the actual words that people are saying, but I'm like, yeah. Oh, we want to send you in for this audition for this great character. Um, By the way, um, she's described as being like super messed up in the face. She's Um, hideous, but she's really great at her job. She's great at, she's a working woman. Um, and also you have to listen to these men talk a lot. Um, I think about this a lot. This is going to be a small tangent. Like whenever I'm watching a movie, especially with children. So I'll use the, the film Heavyweights as an example, where the entire crux of the film is children being ridiculed about their weight and yeah. then going to a camp. And I'm always like, what's that like for that actor, for that yeah. child actor? Like, what is it like to be cast as the quote unquote, unattractive friend or unattractive. Like that is, that is your, the, your main contribution to this performance is that you're just not great looking. So sorry. And it says right. it on paper. So we know it's true. Oh my God. Well, okay. Uh, is, is Jennifer any better? Do- <laughs> Doesn't matter. Okay. So Jennifer is announced. She's we're still in act one this, but this is page 34. So. That was like three paragraphs. I don't think I could describe yeah. myself in five words. That was a lot of words. Yeah. Um, I will say when Emmy announces her, she says Mrs. Dubadad. <laughs> um, Mrs. Dubadad. Okay. So this is Jennifer, Mrs. Dubadad. She is beyond all demure and arrestingly good-looking young woman. She has something of the grace and romance of a wild creature with a good deal of the elegance and dignity of a fine lady. Ridgen, who is extremely susceptible to the beauty of women. <laughs> oh, God, Ridgen, so different from every other man. He really, what that weirdo Ridgen likes he's, a pretty gal. He's weak. He instinctively assumes the defensive at once and hardens his manner still more. He has an impression that she is very well dressed, but she has a figure on which any dress would look well. Oh, God, come on. <laughs> And carries herself with the unaffected distinction of a woman who has never in her life suffered from those doubts and fears as to her social position, which spoil the manners of most middling people. She is tall, slender, yeah, no shit, and strong. (laughs) Strong? And and strong. You know what? She walked in carrying a tree, and that is how we knew (laughs) that she was so strong. I think it's more like she looks like she can afford to eat. But she's slender. She's had some vitamins. (laughs) And I'm noticing that most of these, for both women, the description descriptions are just filled with uh, contradictions. Mm -hmm. She's this, but she's also this. She's this, but don't worry. She's also a little bit of this because you don't want to give someone too much of one thing. We have to keep them humble the whole time. Don't worry, she's pretty, but she doesn't know it. She doesn't something. know. And she hangs out with the guys and she's cool. She eats uh, pizza and drinks whiskey. But she, she hates still, women. And she's still skinny. <laughs> How does she do it? <laughs> um, 
My favorite, one of my favorite character tropes on TV shows is like a snarky, um, hard drinking woman who's been through some trauma, but is still very thin. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of them. And I'm just going to say when I was a hard drinking woman dealing with trauma, I was not very thin because alcohol has a lot of calories (laughs) and you know, snarky women come in all sizes and that's fine. No one has ever, well, in in any sort of film or television show, woken up from a night of drinking, looking anything like a person who just woke up from a night of drinking. So yeah, no, just once. Um, Okay, so Jennifer's description goes on. She has dark. She has dark hair, dressed so as to look like hair and not like a bird's nest or a pantaloons wig. Fashion wavering just then between these two models great yeah well these are really unrealistic expectations for women (laughs) well it's that it's that thing she looks put together but you know she didn't waste anybody's time getting ready she Mm -hmm. could do it in five minutes because even though we need women to look great we also need it to happen in 37 seconds yeah she's not trying too hard this is just her her look is effortless though it probably took three to four hours but it's effortless yeah, and she probably had a maid helper. Um, she has unexpectedly narrow, subtle, dark fringed eyes that okay, alter. I'm sorry, she's been in the room for a minute. <laughs> she's she has not spoken yet. She has <laughs> entered the door frame. That's it. <laughs> she is. I'm not sure has even crossed the threshold. <laughs> she's a Taurus, but she's also okay. Um. Her eyes that alter her expression disturbingly when she is excited and flashes them wide open is softly impetuous in her speech and swift in her movements. So she's strong and fast. And she's just walking in a door. Imagine, I can't wait for her to talk. We're going to get six pages out of that. Um, But she is just now in mortal anxiety. Uh Uh-oh. Mortal anxiety. And not only that, she carries a portfolio. <laughs> I don't know what that is. She what carries is a I portfolio. Mean, I that's I like portfolio. the most that's the most useful part of her description. You're like, oh, you gave her something to hold. You gave her a purpose for being there. Maybe she's gonna open it instead of describing, you know, what her eyes do when she's excited, which how do you know? You don't know. Okay. So Jennifer walks in. He like immediately pops a boner. Um, <laughs> Dr. Bonerington. Or is that guy? Or is that guy? And she is there to ask the newly knighted doctor to save her husband, Louis Dubedat. <laughs> Sorry for time Lewis. to say the name. Louis Dubedat. And- Wait, it's Jennifer and Louis. Jenny <gasps> Louis. Oh, shit. Go on. Um, and guess what he has? T to the B, baby. T to the B. Uh, so he's got tuberculosis, and she's heard about Dr. Rigen having this cure. Um, and he is a man, she says, of great artistic genius. Oh, so that's the portfolio. It's not even her work of art. <laughs> she just wanted to prove to everybody that her husband was worth saving. She was like, look, he can draw really well. <laughs> um and she thinks Dr. Ridgen's the only man that can save him, which might be true. I don't know. And so she shows him the drawings. But much like Bill Gates, he will not give the cure to any poor people. So mm-hmm. bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's the thing. He has a limited 
number of spots to be able to cure. Okay, wait people. a minute. This is so funny because I've been recently rewatching Melrose Place, and of there's course. a story arc where Amanda, played by Heather Locklear, has Hodgkin's lymphoma for three episodes, and she gets that's into- that's how long it lasts. I've heard roughly that is the when you go to a doctor, he's like it's about three episodes of Melrose Place, and uh, she she has to get herself into this exper- experimental treatment program, but there's a limited amount of spots. Mm-hmm. So wow, it sounds like somebody who wrote for Melrose Place was a big GBS fan. It sounds like it. That's um, a conclusion one could draw. I'm just really putting some strings and thumbtacks together on a board here. On your Melrose these... Place vision board. <laughs> my, uh, my, yeah, yeah, my conspiracy theory board is like, wait a minute. Yeah, entirely possible. Um, George Bernard Shaw, you know, he influenced a generation of playwrights and also Melrose Place script supervisors. So, yeah. The more you know. Um, so... He looks at the drawings that Lewis Dubedat has done, and he's like, yeah, these are fine. Um, Particularly one of Jennifer, which he finds particularly impressive because he has the hots for her. And he, he isn't, he's skeptical on whether he can take him in to his, you know, for his cure, but he agrees to have them over. For a private dinner, he's arranged that night with his colleagues um, to celebrate his knighthood. And then there, they'll determine if he's a man who's worth saving because he only has 10 spaces available for his cure and he can't spare any more of them. So it seems like maybe he only actually has one spot left. Okay. And so he has to figure out if this guy is worthy of it. So he's like, okay, the art's pretty good. Like he's not a total hack. We'll do an interview <laughs> with my gonna, other bros. It's gonna be like an indecent proposal thing where he gets in when Jenny sleeps with the. <gasps> they would never do that back then. That's a very sassy. Direction. That's very sassy. But you know, this has a lot of parallels to like things going on right now, like when COVID treatments were very um, not wild, widely available and shitty people like i don't know now former presidents had access to them but not necessarily the common people um whose lives could have been saved and it becomes an issue of like who has access to what and privilege and power and who makes those decisions so um yeah and people don't trust science and that's just Mm -hmm. george bernard shaw who doesn't trust science he doesn't um um so they go over for dinner. Lewis is, you know, all full of tuberculosis. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're going to spend two hours listening to yeah. a man cough his way through some soup yeah. or whatever. This is not going to be great for him. It's probably really damp outside. Um, yeah, but they're it, like, yeah, come over to my drafty ass um, <laughs> townhouse and have this dinner with a bunch of doctors and I guess hopefully you won't die. Well, yeah. And by the way, we're all carrying some sort of disease. I'm sure of it, but you're not even in your best health right now. So it's probably a pretty mm-hmm. good idea for you to expose yourself to as many people as possible. Yeah, absolutely. See at eight. Um, so they show up and they charm every single person there. Cause um, Lewis is a very charming fuck boy. And Jennifer, <laughs> of course, enters a room and time stops um <laughs> she's just so slender how could we yeah. say no to her i'm like yeah oh. so um they're all very charmed by them 
Um, and then they, you know, they have some dinner, I guess, and then they send them home so that his tuberculosis doesn't get worse. <laughs> so he's not out late. So somebody was thinking like, hey, is this a good idea? This guy should be in bed. Like he's about to die. Um, so once they've left, Dr. Blakensop attempts to catch them. Um, and they like chat outside. And when he comes back in, the other, the other doctors who are wealthy have been discussing how Lewis actually borrowed money from all of them in different conversations that night. Um, and they Wait. gladly gave it to him. He like talked them each out of some money for whatever reason and didn't know that that was happening until afterwards. And Blankensop, who's kind of poor, he lent the young artist all the money he had. Um, he'd been scraping up money in order to take the train home and the young man, um, was supposed to repay him, but he never did. So hmm. anyway, we're getting a fuller picture of this, uh, artist. He's not, he's not so good. Um, so we think we've had enough drama for the Sounds night. like he's a con artist. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was good. Thank Go you. <laughs> um, so we think we've had enough drama for the night. And in walks Minnie Tinwell. <laughs> Minnie Tinwell. These are all cartoons. Um, which I think is actually, a, it's like a pretty great name. Minnie I'm, Tinwell. I'm just like picturing, uh, you know, that like burner, burner, and she's just swinging a tiny mm-hmm. purse. And she's just got, you know, she's a very... Uh, curvy curvy gal and she's swinging everything she's got and I don't know why yeah. I'm I'm painting that picture of Minnie but that's what I see when well I that name. she seems great um she's a maid at a seaside resort she comes upon this dinner party I have no idea how <laughs> I, don't I guess the symphony wasn't playing that night and she was just walking by and she sees I think she saw Lewis and Jennifer outside and was like hey I know them I'm gonna knock on the door of this townhouse and and see what's up why they were over there and she reveals that she is actually the legal wife of lewis dubedat what mm-hmm. she married lewis when both of them were already married <laughs> so unclear how it's legal uh, very unclear but okay um and then after their honeymoon they parted ways um, cause she was like, saw right through his bullshit. <laughs> she was yeah. like, no, thank you. Until she hadn't seen him since, um, she saw him with the doctors that night. Cause again, she was just walking the streets looking for yeah. a party and to crash. <laughs> London is a famously small town. Famously, famously small, small. And women from seaside resorts are constantly just yeah. looking for a weird dinner <laughs> to attend. <laughs> um, because there's not a lot going on otherwise. Um, and I would so she- be, I need you to know that I would already be asleep in this. If I was in the audience <laughs> right now, I would already be asleep. Yeah. Done. hundred um, percent. And, uh, but she does have a marriage certificate to prove it. So she carries it on her always. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you, you have gotta. to, you don't know when you're going to have to prove that you're married to a con artist, you know? And then Minnie just like takes off, I guess. She's not mentioned <laughs> again. She's <laughs> like, here's the info. Um, I have some other, I don't know. I have I have a tavern to stop by so I can reveal 
my secret sister is the bartender or whatever. <laughs> this you reminds know? me of, I'm just going to keep referencing nineties, everything from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, this reminds me of in Wayne's world uh, when they go, uh, they, they go out back and Chris Farley is the, uh, is the uh, bouncer at the concert and he gives them all this u- useless ex like uh, this exposition that they'll need later. And it's, and Mike Myers as Wayne Campbell looks at the camera. He's like, wow, it's a good thing we ran into this bouncer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who had all this information. And that's what this is. It's just like Minnie doing an exposition drive-by and it's like, okay, she's in, she's out. We got it. Yep. And we get to see the three types of women in Edwardian London. We have- Sluts, mm-hmm. dirty sluts, and lying sluts. Exactly. Sluts. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um. We love sluts. Um, okay, so the doctors are like, holy shit. Um, what do we do now? Because this guy was super charming and Jennifer was so sweet and hot. And do, <laughs> and we- <laughs> do we try to save her husband? Um, okay, wait. At this point, given all this new information, they still believe that this man actually has tuberculosis. I mean, I'm assuming he looked very bad or sounded yeah, very bad. Yeah, he definitely it's... does. Okay, yeah. okay. Because at this, at in this moment, I would, I, I would then think to myself, oh, this guy doesn't really have TB. What a. But like, bullshit. to what end would he be pretending so that he could get this cure? Like, what is? Did he hear that it like makes? I just your... thought he wanted to end up at a dinner where he could hit up a bunch of rich oh, guys for okay, money. Yeah, that he wanted to just that was the con. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking like the tuberculosis cure actually like made your dick bigger. And he was like into that. <laughs> um, but no. So another plot twist. So they're already facing a dilemma. And then they discover that Dr. Blankensop, the good one. Also married to Lewis. <laughs> also has tuberculosis. Wait, oh no. Wait, how, how did this not come? This- how did he not get tuberculosis is what I'm wondering. <laughs> I don't, how wait, how, but wait, how do you catch tuberculosis first and foremost? Because I, it, it, I believe it's an airborne illness. Okay, so everyone at that dinner probably also has tuberculosis at this point. Um, you know, I'm not an expert, but it's like, you know, I think it's like with COVID, like droplets and stuff. Um, yeah. Again, not a medical expert. Yeah. Um, so they find out he has tuberculosis. So then Ridgen is like, well, do I save Dubidot? He's like a really good artist and kind of sucks a lot. Doesn't have any honor. Or Blinkensop, who's like a good man, but just okay at being a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if maybe he was a better doctor, I would save him because then he would okay. save more people. This this is an interesting dilemma, the doctor's dilemma, because mm-hmm. you, if we could if we could extrapolate this into how the arts suffer the most, just like we've seen that during the pandemic, how the arts have suffered the most, and obviously we've needed to put a lot of money behind science. So here we have in this in this mm-hmm. play. Do we save science or do we save the arts? I'm saying fuck the arts in this case. (laughs) Yeah, I always want to save science. Okay, but here's the other thing. Ridgen's judgment is also clouded by the fact that he wants Lewis to die so that he can marry Jennifer. Which is a very huge leap to assume that the next, like the next logical step after Lewis's death would be his eventual betrothal. Yes, to this like young hot woman. Slender. (laughs) 
this young slender woman slender woman so yeah so this is the central dilemma of the play who do you save okay it also feels like i thought we were maybe gonna kind of go into a 12 angry men territory where we have all these men sitting around debating whether or not Mm -hmm. they actually save lewis but now it's just like a it's these these two guys so i just think it's so weird that he didn't say anything until that point you would think that the first thing you would do is tell your friend who has a tb cure yeah you yourself have tb Mm -hmm. instead he waits for a weird dinner and then it's just like well i guess if he's talking about his tuberculosis it's probably a good time for me to bring up mine he's like actually um if i could have the floor for just a second (laughs) hey thanks for the segue i also i'm gonna yes and that i'm gonna zip zip, zap zap i too have tuberculosis i too have tuberculosis tuberculosis no is that Mm. almost almost so these men obviously are very upset um that uh lewis is kind of a cad we might say and um and again many just like went off into the night so they're like cool we got that info (laughs) and they decide they're gonna show up at the dubadot residence to get to the bottom of things they're gonna find out what's going on and do they want to go to the the belly of the tb den the belly the tb pool that they live in um, and they're, they don't have a lot of money, I don't think. So they probably live in like a tenement sort of situation that's crowded. Um, I don't know their whole life, but it doesn't seem luxurious. Um, but again, she does have room to do her hair with ease. So maybe they have like a, a nice size apartment. Probably someone's parents gave it to them. Um, yeah, that sounds like there's so, a lot of generational wealth. Yeah, so when you're they show artist. up they show up at the Dubidots um, and they offer them some like tuberculosis water or whatever. <laughs> and Lewis is still like turning on the charm because he thinks like he can just get them to do whatever he wants. Um, and he admits he was married to Minnie, um, but they had agreed to end their relationship. And he probably said that laws are stupid and he's an artist. So who cares? Um, and this, I, I'm guessing this is also the first time Jennifer's hearing about this record so she, scratch. <laughs> so she's hearing about this in front of like these seven men she just met and her husband is like, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm married, but like, whatever. <laughs> I, I still can't get over the absolute pointless appearance of Minnie and then the even less useful disappearance of Minnie like it just I, yeah. I really think I need to see I don't need to see this play that's a lie but I really think I would like to just see that part so I could really understand what was happening I would like to see a play about Minnie at the seaside driver. resort oh sorry played by Minnie driver played by Minnie, that's what I thought and she's saying. like okay. having affairs yeah. mm-hmm. and I don't it's know the, it's the sequel to circle of friends bigger circle of friends bigger seaside circle, circle of, of friends, friends. yeah it's the oval of friends there it is yeah TM. um so they're like questioning his character and Lewis busts out his colored pencils <laughs> or whatever <laughs> his crayons and he draws a portrait of Sir Patrick um, which he then sells to Bonington. Why Bonington wanted to buy a portrait <laughs> of Sir Patrick by this guy who sucks. I really don't know. Um, 
I'm just trying to picture, no offense, like you and I are hanging out and, and there's a third person and they draw a picture of you. And I'm just like, yeah, I need to buy that. I need right to buy now. it. I need to buy it. I need to have that. I need that. Mm-hmm. Jenny, were you going to buy that picture of you? Because if you're not going to buy it, I'm buying it. I mean, they didn't have, oh. I guess they didn't have, um, you Cameras? know, uh, yeah, a Polaroid nearby. No. So they were like, oh, this is a nice portrait. And Sir Patrick is kind of old, but he doesn't have TB, but who knows? Maybe he'll get it tomorrow. I mean, everyone in this room has it. Who are we kidding? But yes. And also Bonington is like kind of dumb. So he's just like, yeah, I want this portrait. That'd be great. <laughs> Um, also what's that thing about you being married? (laughs) Um, I I guess I forgot. This is beautiful. I love art. Um, art is what matters. So, um, so then I guess Jennifer comes back in. I don't know what she was doing. Um, something, something without effort. I'll tell you that much. Probably crying somewhere. Um, she comes back in and Ridgen, Dr. Ridgen says that Bonington is actually going to take care of Lewis's tuberculosis. He's going to treat him. He can't, he doesn't have the space. So he's going to turn it over to his friend Bonington, who again, just bought a portrait from, (laughs) from Lewis. So he obviously cares about his career. And, um, and she's like, no, you're the one who actually knows how to cure it. I want you to do it. You're the one who's a knight. This Bonington guy is like super weird vibes. I, you know, but she's like, okay, I trust your judgment because you're a man. And also I don't have a lot of power in this situation, I guess. So she agrees to it. Um, but what Ridgen knows and what she doesn't know is that the treatment that Ridgen has devised has to be done in a certain sequence like a certain order and bonington doesn't know what that sequence is he just kind of knows what the methods are i think so ridgen is like he's gonna treat you it's gonna be fine it's the same thing and bonington's like um is it (laughs) (laughs) um so lewis goes under bonington's care and very soon he succumbs to the tp he gets worse and he's on his deathbed. Still Poss- drawing. Still drawing. Still drawing. He's drawn out a will. What's up? <laughs> What's that? Um, he's just, he's really vision boarding some weird stuff. <laughs> and he has just a few moments left in his life. And he tells his wife, like his dear, dear, beautiful Jennifer with her beautiful hair. He tells her, please marry again. If you find, if you found marriage to be pleasant with me. Yeah, just do what I did. Uh, just keep getting married. Don't stop. Just and keep also, doing it. Did she find marriage pleasant with him? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was a real nightmare. Um, and he also says, "Don't speak of me to your new husband because he will be jealous." Oh God, get he, uh, not. Mm. He will be jealous of this. <laughs> this art, <laughs> cheating artist, <laughs> con artist, who died. Um. I like how I said who died like that's a character defect <laughs> like um yeah he also asks her not to wear mourning clothes which was the custom for women or to wear black and people to wear arm band, bands of mourning he says please don't do that you have to always dress beautifully so that others oh, will God. say others will say she was married to Louis Dubedat 
this guy is so insufferable, even on his deathbed. It's all of, it's mm-hmm. really, I was about to say it's really all about him, but that's actually not yeah. fair because he is dying. But this is like a, an ego trip to keep making mm-hmm. these post-mortem demands. Yeah. And he's Ugh. like, don't tell your new husband about me, but make sure all of society knows. <laughs> Make and sure I would have been know. like, you're going to, you're going to be dead and you won't know what I'm going to do. I'm gonna He's like, say whatever I want. Just dress super hot. And then that will continue my legacy of bringing beauty into the world. So he finished his little drawing, um, <laughs> which I'm imagining is on the back of like a, uh, cocktail napkin yeah or like a menu at a chinese restaurant like the paper menu yeah so he's just drawing on it with his little crayons um and he dies resting his head in her bosom i knew i knew the word bosom was coming down the pipeline i was just waiting for it i mean which is like kind of the dream way to go for him right? yeah it's right above her slender waist and then jennifer which girl i wish i wish jennifer would stand up for herself a little bit or take a minute to like cry and be messy, but no, she goes to change her clothes well, in order to, to it's immediately. In TV. She has to immediately be as her husband asked her to be, which was beautiful. Sure. And she bids farewell to her friends, which I think are the other doctors. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they've all been hanging out. They've all been hanging the out the whole time. They never a left. Couple, for a couple weeks. Yeah, they never um, left the apartment, the shanty. But she doesn't consider Ridgen to be a friend because she knows of his deceit. She knows that he lied and let her husband die. Okay, wait. Is this it? That's not it. Um that's not the end. Now we have we have a little like postscript here. And that's also 175 pages. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it is about the perils of having male friends. (laughs) Um, So the following season, which I don't know if that means television season or oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like well they take a winter break and then they come back in uh in january jennifer she has dedicated her life still to lewis's legacy god help her to being and, beautiful and to being hot and standing next to art that her dead asshole husband made <laughs> and his work is being displayed in a one man show put on by her and Ridgen shows up to buy, he comes early, which I love a man who's like shows up early to things, but not in this case. Um, and he wants to buy some art and he, um, but he makes a, a belittling comment to the curator about Lewis and who, what he was. That like guy couldn't even beat tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And guess who overhears it? Jennifer. Jennifer Dubedat. So. She's very appalled, very upset. And when they're alone talking, um, he admits that he killed Lewis by not treating him himself and that he knew Bonington would fudge the treatment. He would fudge it. And thus Lewis would die and that that was his goal. And he did it because he was in love with her. And she finds this really gross. I can't, I can't <laughs> believe that that method of flirting isn't working yeah. on her. She you finds know, the it one. really gross because he's super old. <laughs> and but she's, also is a murderer, technically. Yeah, she's super young and hot and virtuous and perfect in every way, except for, you know, having thoughts and opinions of her own, um, which, you know, 
we can blame GBS for that, not her. Yeah. Um, and he tells her, uh, you know, he's like, okay, I did, I did write down what what paintings and drawings I want to buy, and she will not allow it. She won't allow his work to be sold to him. And she then reveals that she has already remarried, as was Lewis's wish to Minnie. <laughs> oh, that would be a great love story, actually. Um, and then it ends with him. He begins to speak, needing to say something to her, but he decides against it and leaves the best decision he's made the entire play, which is now over. <laughs> okay. That was, a, that was terrible. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> and this, now, was this, did this do well? Because obviously I've never heard of this one, not that that means anything. It I've was never heard. well received. Um, and it has been produced like in recent years too. It's not one of his more popular works. I mean, I don't know how many times it's been produced, but, um, you know, it brings up some interesting issues of morality, I guess, but it's just like, I just think it's trash. <laughs> there's just nothing. I, I mean, I, I, there's no, there's no, it's, just, it's not a great ending. Jennifer certainly doesn't come out on top. I would think, I mean, I personally think she should have sold everything and taken his money, his, his crap, crap money. Yeah. And that's what you do. And she probably could have sold it to him for two or three times what those terrible stick figure drawings, I assume were worth. Well, it seemed like he was like this promising young artist. So maybe when he died, you know, his art became more popular. And so she was able to get money from that, which is good. And we don't know anything about her husband. Um, or maybe we do. But again, I didn't read the whole play. <laughs> no, and I don't, I would not want that for you. I don't wish that <laughs> thank on, you, a, thank on you. anyone. Um, did you tell me that this is what I'm going to keep coming back to love so, story? Okay. So before 1906 which is when this play was first produced the the name jennifer was really uncommon um but it gained some recognition or like it people became more aware of it after this play and so a lot of people will cite or i've seen it cited when i was doing our research for our first episode that this kind of helped spur it on but actually the uk statistics um for that time only show the name entering the top 100 um in 1934 which was 28 years after the play was first staged so i think it started it like a little bit but then it didn't reach momentum until 1934 i don't know because why. it was such a bad play yeah. <laughs> nobody saw that and was like yeah. but people had never heard it and actually in the play when he when she introduces herself to um to dr ridgen he's like oh i've never heard that name and she's like it's 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 the cornish form of guinevere and i was like we knew that <laughs> oh my gosh well so, take me back to a time when jennifer is a special crazy name mm -hmm. to have so i think uh and i think blankensop comes out okay i think he does survive and keeps you know being oh yeah because he also had like a good dude tb no who else had tb yeah he had tb okay and he was a mediocre doctor but he actually wanted to help people so i think he's the real winner here um yeah, i would argue that you're not a bad you're not a good doctor if you're like what makes you a good doctor is your desire to help people right so i don't mm -hmm. even understand how you can be a good doctor when you don't want to help 
people. I guess you could be more skilled, but if you're not using those skills, then what are, what, what's happening? Yeah. So, so that, okay. that is the doctor's dilemma by George Bernard Shaw. Oh God. What if, uh, you know, no, that's so bad. Listen, <laughs> You're like, no, no, it's, it can't be. <laughs> what's funny is that the last thing, maybe I already said this, and this is Jennifer related still. So it's perfect for the podcast is one of the last things I did in 2020 before everything uh, started happening was I was in London for my birthday where I saw, this was February, 2020, where I saw back to the future, the musical, mm. um, it had, wow. a soft, it had a soft opening in Manchester. So yeah, I went to two nights in a row. I did. And there's obviously a Jennifer in that mm-hmm. production and that film. So I'll sit through a good play or musical. I'm going to sit through something that has some Huey Lewis in the news music. I'm going to sit through something that had a full ass DeLorean fly out into the audience. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. This, can you imagine going from back, back to the future down to this garbage? I don't think so. There's yeah. no dilemma. I mean, it's a guy being like, should I let this guy die so I can marry his wife? What do I do? I have such problems. I'm just I'm just imagining women sitting in that audience um, softly clapping because they're trained to feel that way. And they're like, this was a really good play. Honey, what would you have done? <laughs> and then they're like, can we get some more feedback from Minnie on this issue? Because I feel like Minnie. We need a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but for Minnie. <laughs> Yeah, just, that's all it is. I want Minnie and Emmy. I want them yes. to be the starring duo. Sounds like they're the new Thelma and Louise. Like well, Jennifer, Jennifer, you know, she was, I think, doing her best. She's a product of her characterization. So yeah, she was too beautiful to be uh, three dimensional in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. Because we don't get anything ab- about her really clearly. We learned more about the description of the servant who we only met for 30 seconds than we did about Jennifer full stop. Yeah. And she is presumably uh, throughout the entire play. Yeah. And, and if you want to read this full play or the super whack preface, you know, it's on Google books cause it's um, not in copyright anymore. So no. No, I've had it, but I just read it to you. So thank you for listening to Jenny spoils a play. It consider it spoiled. <laughs> it's done. It's over. Oh man. I hated that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, follow us on Instagram yes. at too many Jennifer's. Uh, we're on Twitter at too many J's pod. You can email us also. Um, if you have suggestions for future topics, um, or comments at too many Jennifer's pod at gmail.com. All right. And we'll see you at the what dinner party. Dinner party. That's what I want. <laughs> That's I was trying to think of a way to tie it back in. That was a real dilemma for me. Oh boy. <laughs>